On February 21, 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated in New York City at the Audubon Ballroom. To remember his legacy from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight, we bring you a panel discussion we recorded at the Enoch Pratt Free Library in May of 2011 about Manning Marable, the scholar who passed away just days before his groundbreaking biography, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, was published. His biography sought to redefine Malcolm's legacy and to honor his life and work. We put together a panel of other leading thinkers to discuss the insights, agreeing or disagreeing, on Malcolm X's life that he brought to light. Included on that panel are Michael Eric Dyson, author and university professor of sociology at Georgetown University, Melissa Harris-Perry, professor of political science at Tulane University and host of MSNBC's Melissa Harris-Perry Show, Sherilyn Eiffel, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, and Lester Spence, professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. So let's jump into the heat of the battle and, and talk about the significance of this book and the argument around the significance of this book. Clearly, it's adding something huge to this discussion, but what is it? I mean, I wrestled this book reading through it twice. Um, but before I throw out some of those ideas to see if you agree or disagree, I'm just curious, going through the panel, starting with Sheldon Eiffel, um, what is for you the historical significance of Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention? Thank you, Mark. Um, well, first of all, the significance, of course, is that Manning Marable wrote it. Um, and uh, that Marable himself really represents an example for many of us who became scholars, who entered the academy, um, of how one can live as a relevant scholar, a, a scholar who's relevant to the lives of uh, African-American people, who is focused on bringing um, truth in great detail. This is my kind of book, 80 pages of footnotes. Um, <laughs> I love it. And um, I remember that the night that... Um, the news came out that um, Manning Marable had passed away. I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've never been before, but giving a talk um, about slavery and reparations at University of Michigan. And the woman who was hosting me was the person who told me about it. Um, she teaches at University of Michigan in the law school and in the um, Afro-American Studies Department, white woman, and she immediately began to tell me about how Manning Marable had mentored her as a young scholar in New York. Uh, and I didn't find this surprising that I was somewhere in the heartland and somebody was telling me this story because of his tremendous reach and influence. The seeds that he planted um, as a mentor are just extraordinary. So I don't want to, before we jump right into talking about Malcolm X, yeah, the book, yeah, yeah. really want to say that for me a, a good deal of the significance is that he wrote it. I would secondly say it's also significant um, that unfortunately he died before the book was released, but that this evening and others like it are so important. I can remember when the mother of, Med of um, um, Emmett Till died. She also had a book that she had written, and she died a week before the book came out. And most of you have probably never read the book because, of course, she wasn't alive to do the publicity. It, it's a powerfully important book. It's about what happens to mothers. It's about the journey of a mother when her son is killed, something very powerful for the African-American community. So I just want to say tonight is also really important, and it's our job to carry this forward. In terms of the significance, very briefly then for me, um, I actually think that this book is um, in some ways long overdue um, because it provides 
um, missing details that in your in your in your intellectual spirit and in your spirit spirit you just know have to be missing from what you know. Those of us who were not um, did not personally know Malcolm X or know people who personally knew him uh, that were missing from the story, um, and that is really the day to day struggle of what it takes to evolve as a leader, as particularly as an African American male leader uh, who has integrity. Um, it is a journey. It is not a place. And there have been so many pieces of Malcolm's journey that are missing. They've been filled in for King in many different works and in many different ways. But I've always found these huge gaps uh, in terms of Malcolm X's journey. And many of them are filled by this book. And they're really important because of the iconic position that he holds for so many. And I'm sure we can talk about more of this later. I'll stop there. Michael. Michael Eric Dyson who also wrote a blurb on the back of this book. Mm, yes. I'm the first to read it. Well, um, I'm honored to be here tonight on such a distinguished panel and, of course, in memory of uh, Manning. I wish he could have been here himself to talk about his book. He would have loved this audience and the vibrant reception to which his book, that his book has been accorded. Um, and, of course, it's been controversial as well. And Manning was fully prepared for that in my conversations with him. Um, he loved Malcolm X like very few other people. He loved the meaning of the man. He loved his historical significance. He loved his revolutionary potential and practice. And he also um, had to face up to the fact that as a historian and an intellectual and a scholar, he had to tell the truth as best he could, as best he understood it. And I think the, the power and the beauty of this book is that it's rendered in such accessible and eloquent prose that it engages a broad spectrum and continuum of scholarly data. It takes account of heretofore, um, if you will, um, unaccessed data about Malcolm in terms of interviews and diaries and in terms of some of the FBI files. And it really tries to wrestle with the complicated story of an iconic figure who meant so much to varying and sometimes competing in outright contradictory constituencies. So uh, Manning had a very difficult job to do. It's similar to Spike Lee doing his film uh, with the fire and the heat of various constituencies trying to figure out what are you going to make of this man that we love. And even more so, because this is a scholarly text that tries to grapple with the significance of Malcolm X, I think it's an enormous work. I do believe it's a, a magnum opus, his magnum opus, uh, and, and that's saying a whole lot because Manning wrote a great deal of brilliant things that have to be dealt with, uh, from some of his earlier stuff, how capitalism underdeveloped black America, down to his work on black politics, and it's an extraordinary career uh, that he had, a vocation for trying to bring lucidity and clarity to complicated and difficult truths. So uh, I, I laud this book. I read it. I was privileged to read it before it was published. Uh, it's a brilliant, insightful, invigorating, edifying comprehension of as outsized and an immortal uh, human being has emerged on American soil. And those who are consternated by some of Malcolm's, by some of Manning's findings, have to remember that he calls Malcolm the greatest black figure to emerge in 20th century. It just don't get no deeper than that. 
So a lot of the stuff that's come out, some of it has been exaggerated, some of it has been generated from people's own sense of insecurities and frailties, and quite frankly, homophobia, uh, and the fear of dealing with the raw truth of an evolving human being. And uh, I celebrate this book. I think that the essence of it is that it delivers, as, as uh, Professor Eiffel said, uh, as complicated a vision of a man who needs to be understood and in his own autobiography that, that Manning has now challenged uh, in a powerful way, Malcolm says that they won't let me turn the corner. And so many people still have him in a bear hug that refuses to let him breathe freely the air of his own evolution. So I celebrate this book and look forward to talking to you about it. Thank you, Michael. Bless you, Spence. Um, like the rest of the panel, I want to take a bit of time to talk about um, um, Manning. I don't uh, we often black box the act of uh, production, of cultural production, the act of writing a book, the act of uh, writing a song, the act of uh, painting a picture, right? Um, and I think we do that for a number of reasons, but I, I, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why we might want to unpack that process. So why does it play a role here? Uh, Manning Marable suffered from sarcoidosis, uh, and it's important to talk a little bit about um, the disparity. So sarcoidosis is something that affects black people a little bit more than whites, but when black people get it, they get it far worse. So Manning had to have both lungs replaced. And he wrote this book while, having, while dealing with that, right? So we don't talk a lot about the act of production, the act, the type of grind it takes to wrote, like I wrote a little book that's coming out. Right? She's wrote two. These guys have wrote several. Every time you're dealing with some type of crisis, right, and you still have to do it. The fact that he was able to do it and that he'd never done anything like this in his career, which was already long, is really a testimony. Right? Uh, we have four roles as scholars. Uh, some, some of us are primarily mentors. Some of us are primarily writers. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are institution builders. Manning was all four, right? University of Colorado at Boulder, Ohio State, Columbia. He either founded or developed black studies programs. And he did some of this stuff while I believe he was in his 20s. Mm -hmm. Late 20s, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really important to talk about that process and how great a scholar he was, right? Mm -hmm. Now, with that said, I think I'm going to be the role of the critic in that I believe this work is the work scholars will have to wrestle with when dealing with Malcolm X's legacy going forward. However, even as it humanizes him, there are a whole set of questions that are, um, that are shunted aside or not effectively dealt with, and it diminishes the importance of an extremely important work. And I, we'll talk a little bit more, but I, I think he does not give... Uh, enough attention to black nationalism, to its evolution, and even as the Nation of Islam has some incredibly problematic politics in a number of different dimensions, he doesn't effectively deal with, the, with some of the reasons why the Nation of Islam was as effective as it was in mobilizing people. Right? So, so the book ends up kind of, the book ends up doing a great deal. Right? And it, and it is the it is an excellent 
way to end a career. I, I'm so sorry that he's not here to participate in this. But with that said, there are some questions, and hopefully we'll be able to wrestle with those and scholars will deal with them going forward. We'll do that. Melissa Harris-Perry. So I, I too, will uh, take a Manning moment, and um, only because I just really loved him. And I really loved him mostly because he was incredibly snarky. And um, I just, you know, I I like nice people, but I so prefer um, (laughs) people who are a little harsh and a little snarky and a little, um, you know, will make sort of uh, the the observation. And I can remember sitting and and listening to... um, people who were very important scholars giving lectures in a room with Manning and looking over and catching um, his expressions and um, thinking, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. (laughs) And so uh, it's certainly, um, having um, known him in those places, I know he would not want it to be exclusively a love fest because he, part of how he showed he loved you, was was through criticism um, and through through clear-eyed, careful uh, intellectual engagement. So I appreciate you um, uh, bringing that as well. Just a few things I think that are important about the book from my perspective. I actually um, would take some uh, disagreement with your um, representation of how he represents the nation of Islam. One of the things I like best about the book was my sense that he um, presents, at least theologically, um, as he is discussing the nation, um, without... um, without any, actually, of the snark or of the sense of foolishness or ridiculousness. He engages the theology of the nation of Islam with as much respect and as much care as a historian of any religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, for example, if we read books about um, people who are in, important um, leaders within the Christian tradition, no one mocks the idea that, oh yeah, and by the way, he believed in this religion where this guy got up after three days of being dead and walked around. <laughs> but, um, but pretty frequently when you read scholarly works on the nation, they do make fun of creation myths. They do mock the fundamental um, underlying theological precepts. And Manning not only restrains himself from that, but presents, I think, in some ways that um, even though we know the rejection of many of those ideas that are going to come later in the book from Malcolm himself. Uh, the second thing that this book did for me I know a lot of people are angry that that the text um, takes away the hero that is Malcolm X for so many people. I'll come double back to that in a second. But um, the thing he killed for me was Alex Haley. <laughs> um, yeah, he he doesn't. Boy, you read this and Alex is not looking like you should feel very good about him. Uh, and it, yeah, it, right, that had been done, but there's a way in which it happening here um, is, is uh, well, it's the work that he has to do in order to deconstruct the autobiography, right? So in order to deconstruct the autobiography, he actually, interestingly enough, takes us into the black box of Haley's writing, right? Exactly the black box you're talking about. And of course, as we know, it's not always pretty um, because there are all, particularly when you're writing to feed yourself. So, um, so I think you have to, to take that in ways that, um, that, that were challenging. Now, the, the third thing that I thought was critically important as we talk about um, Manning's passing here, and then, um, you know, I'd read the book, 
uh, and, and I'd read the section on the assassination, and I read it very quickly because I found it very painful to read, particularly um, in the context of Manning's own passing, something about the way, the speed with which his narrative picks up there and the intensity of it. But I reread it again um, yesterday, that section, in the context of the killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, and, and not because in any way I think Malcolm X and Osama bin Laden have anything to do with one another, but only in the sense of Americans' blood lust, that desire to see the picture, that uh, enthusiasm about the murder of the opponent. And I wanted to pause and, and go back and think about Malcolm's assassination again in the context of it being a very American moment, right? So we think of Malcolm as as the black nationalist critiquing America, but is still at all points caught up in a very American structure, um, including the nation. And so reading that again um, in the context of the of the killing of bin Laden was uh, created a certain kind of pathos. And then the very final thing I'll say in this introduction is I am um, ready to give up Alex Haley's Malcolm X. And not and Spike Lee's Malcolm X, and not everybody is. And I think it's actually okay that not everybody is. I have a, a dear friend who teaches at an all boys um, uh, charter school in an inter, in the inner city, and there is no book that appears more frequently on this friend's um, syllabus or on this friend's personal bookshelf than the autobiography of Malcolm X. I, I don't think I've ever seen his bookshelf with fewer than fifteen copies, and he's never taught a class to these. Um, kids without teaching the autobiography. And, you know, we, the work in political science is this idea that Malcolm is um, both through the film, through Lee's film, and through the autobiography, he's a kind of magical talisman. You, you rub him to get your manhood fix, and you um, you know, you, you sort of do a Malcolm X incantation to represent your anger at the American state and your sense of what the organizing political possibilities of, of black manhood are. And so it's that myth is incredibly important and powerful and does important organizing work. But I'm ready for it to give it up without needing to demand that anyone else be ready to give it up. I'm ready to give it up. But I wasn't ready to give it up into a void. I suspected it wasn't quite right, as, as, as Sherilyn says, but I wasn't ready to give it up into a void. And what, what Manning's text does is allow us to give up that myth without having to walk into a void. It gives us something else that is contentious and that we'll have to deal with, but at least gives us another Malcolm who we can love in a very different kind of way. Let me do, uh, what I'd like to do is I'll, I'll throw a question out, but I want, feel free just to leap into things rather than going, Michael, uh, fill in and just make it stilted. And I, I want to pick up on a, some of the things you said and also some of the things that were in this book that come out of these notes that really, that really uh, attach themselves to what you were just saying. And let, me, let me begin with where we just left off. Because for some people, that's part of the, there are many hearts of the matter to this book that, that, um, that are tearing people apart who care about Malcolm X and who care about this world in this way and have read this book. And so let's begin with Alex Haley. I mean, Alex Haley was, his book was a seminal work that moved millions of young Americans 
not just African Americans, but mostly African Americans, but not just African Americans, move human beings to understand the struggle on this planet about oppressed people and a sense of being African American and where you stood and why you stood there and what you had to fight for, and a sense of being. So having said that, I'm just thinking what you just said, Melissa. So, so the, and, and, and do, people do read this, and I can read this and go, hmm, did he trash Alex too hard? Some people have criticized Manning in this book by saying that he also uh, liberalized the image of Malcolm X at the end of the book. Um, not dissimilarly from Alex Haley, some would argue. So what about the argument about Alex Haley's book no longer being relevant and this being relevant now? Go ahead, Michael, you can jump in. Well, I, you know, I think that in light of what everybody has said and what, you know, after reading the book myself, sur surely you can't read Haley the same way. That's for sure. You can't come to the same conclusion. You can't see it through the same lenses because, you know, Manning makes clear that his political ideological uh, framework, his being Haley, determined what he included, what he excluded, what he kept in. It sounds like the Bible. So the thing is, right, I mean, because it's been a Bible. It's been a biblical text, right? Right. So, but... There's a lot of stuff. If you think Manning's stuff is deep on Malcolm, the stuff that New Testament scholars bring when you're a beginning minister to tell you about that stuff, the Bible busters, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonder you even have any faith left, right? <laughs> Which is beautiful because I believe in trying to deconstruct and demythologize a lot of the stuff that has accreted historically around these texts that reveal more about the projections of authors and the possibilities that they imagined than an objective truth. So um, I think that the autobiography continues to be useful, but it has to be seen in a specific way. And I think once we read Haley's autobiographical construction of Malcolm's life, he was his amanuensis, he was the secretary, so to speak, but he was doing a lot more by throwing stuff in uh, and keeping stuff out and fighting with publishers who wanted their own vision of Malcolm to prevail. I mean, it's not just Haley and Malcolm. It's also white publishing houses, it's liberal ideological and political frameworks, and it's Malcolm's own self-mythologizing. Yep. Let's not, you know, let's not just act like Malcolm himself was a template of objective truth upon which we could then print our conceptions of what his life was like. He's self-mythologizing too. This is what Manning helps us understand. Malcolm is exaggerating his hustling itinerary for particular purposes, to try to suggest the redemptive power of Elijah Muhammad, though that gets turned on its head at the end of his life. So when I think about the book, no, I don't get, I guess because, you know, there was a famous preacher preaching once on a, a black preacher, a very, very famous guy, and these two seminary uh, students were there, and it was an Easter Sunday, and he was chanting, you know, Jesus got up on Sunday morning and raised up. And people, oh, yes, oh, my God, it's amazing. And the two, the two seminarians came up to him after the, the Easter Sunday sermon, and they said, you know, Reverend so-and-so, you, you restored my faith. I've been, oh, my God, I'm in seminary, and I'm reading all this stuff. And now here you are talking about Jesus' resurrection. He said, oh, you believe all that shit? And, um, <laughs> right? Now... You could either say this guy was cynical, that he was lying, or that even when you know that all the stuff you read about the Bible 
and the way in which it was shaped and how Jesus wasn't born when they said he was and the stuff that people wrote. You read Bart Ehrman's work now, the, pe- the forgery, right? The stuff in the Bible that said was written by Paul, wasn't written by Paul, and all that stuff. At the end of the day, you may still have a faith that is sustained in the midst of the deconstruction, but the deconstruction ought to give you a different sense of how the texts were produced. If we talk about Professor Spencer's notion of the black box of production, because talking about the black box assumes that there's been a crash too, right? And the crashing has been of the kind of the clash between, you know, our understanding of intellectual processes that bring the sharpest scholarship possible with the kind of faith assertions. And I think uh, uh, Professor Harris Perry is right on here is that Manning takes the cosmology and the theology of the nation of Islam, which makes just as much sense as any other religious assertion that's been put out there. Uh, So that, I think, is powerful. So I would end by saying this. No, I don't think you have to give up Alex Haley's book, but you have to give up what you think about Alex Haley's book, and you got to give up what you thought it did, and you got to give up what Malcolm said about himself. Well, dang, where do you begin? At the beginning. You begin by seeing that lives are lived in constant and repeated affirmation of ideals that constantly evolve. That's why Frederick Douglass had to write three autobiographies. And Malcolm, had he lived, might have wrote some more. So I think that we don't have to give it up, but we have to give up what we think about it, and then we begin to use that text differently, informed with all the stuff that uh, Manning brought to us. So so I was going to also suggest that... uh, that, that this sounded like a discussion about the Bible in a way because of the way people respond to text. But I guess I want to suggest that it's not like a discussion about the Bible because, um, you know, I think part of our problem is that we read books like they're religious texts. Um, you know, religion in and of itself is irrational. It's a faith. You believe it. I'm a Christian. You believe it. And even though, you know, you can't scientifically prove all the stuff, you believe what you believe. Um, and too often, particularly when it comes to our heroes, we read about them um, and internalize stories about them as though they are a religious figure, and that is as though they are a deity. And so we cut off our, phys- our, our critical faculty, um, and we become invested in perpetuating certain myths. And it, it happened with Martin for many years. It's just that we've been through that process now, so sometimes we don't even remember how much people were invested in a mythology about Martin Luther King, Jr., who had to be humanized over decades so that we now recognize him as a man. Uh, And I think that that's the stage that we're at now with this text. And I love it because precisely as, as Dr. Dyson says, the competing narrative, you can never fully understand, you know, any human being, the walk of any human being. We're all the product of competing narratives, including those about ourselves. Now, when you start out reading something called an autobiography, we all know that we talk about ourselves a little bit differently than maybe how other people would talk about us, right? So you are, you are reading a biased text as soon as it calls itself an author. And I love Frederick Douglass, but I'm sure right, that if somebody else, if Mrs. Douglass were writing the story, I'm just saying to say. Um, so so it, is the, it is the failure of our critical faculty. It is our investment. And be honest about this, as African-American people, we are very protective of our heroes, very protective of them. Um, but sometimes it's to the exclusion of wanting to accept them as men and as women. And here's the danger, and that's why I like this book. 
too much of precisely what uh, Melissa said is true, you know, about Malcolm becoming a talisman. What we do when we mythologize figures like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King is that we scare off people from thinking that they can be leaders. We make it look like it's some magical, mystical tour that you just, you know, you have to be born into it and then you have to be in prison and somebody has to anoint you and you, you know, we make it all sound like magic and it's not magic. These are men and women and they are human beings um, and, and everyone has the potential to be a great leader. And so I always feel that when we begin to get these texts that help us humanize, you know, I like the boring parts of the book. I like just the day-to-day, going down to Mosque Number 7, having this conversation, having this meeting. Have, this is what is involved in a real life. And as, as much as the more powerful and lurid parts of the book, those to me are very, very important because they describe for people and show people just the day-to-day, the mundane interactions with human beings, with different personalities and so forth that go into creating this story. It's in that way a much less um, obviously kind of mythic story than the autobiography of Malcolm X, but it's very, very powerful if it suggests to people that Malcolm X is a human being that had you know, great qualities, great potential, because he certainly had not reached where he could have reached, uh, and that's an important theme of the book also, um, but that he's accessible in ways that I think Alex Haley's work makes him not accessible. And to me, that is very powerful and a good thing. You're listening to a panel we recorded in May of 2011 at the Enoch Pratt Free Library about the life of Malcolm X and the legacy of Manning Marable, author of Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. This week, we remember Malcolm X, who was assassinated in New York City on February 21st, 1965. Welcome back. I'm Mark Steiner. We're about to jump back into a panel discussion we originally recorded on May 11th, 2011, about Malcolm X. Manning Marable had just written Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention and passed away shortly afterwards. We gathered a panel, including Michael Eric Dyson, author and professor of sociology at Georgetown University, Melissa Harris-Perry, professor of political science at Tulane University and host of MSNBC's Melissa Harris-Perry Show, Sherilyn Eiffel, president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, Incorporated, and professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, and Lester Spence, professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. What happens when we take the iconic figures of our existence and, as some would argue, humanize them, other people look at us trashing them by telling, you know, when, when Taylor Branch writes his book about uh, uh, his trilogy about, about, about Martin Luther King and clearly talks about Martin Luther King's affairs and what Martin, what Martin Luther King faced and as well and all those things as well. So what happens to us as a people when that happens? Because we lose... Because leaders are on pedestals, as you just said, Sherilyn. So what happens when books like this come out and they talk about things that make people's stomachs twist? I mean, I, I, it seems to me that there are many possibilities. Mm-hmm. One is the most empowering story, which is the more that we recognize the humanity of those who did great things, the more we feel capable ourselves of doing great things. It is, to go back um, to, the, to the seminary example... 
it, it is the, the other possibility of the story of Jesus is that he is simultaneously divine and human. And if you can hold on to the human part, it can make the story feel more empowering. Right. And so holding on to the human part, the failings part. But but part of what I would suggest also is that some of what we're talking about here when it came to King is about failings. But a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to Malcolm are not necessarily failings. They are simply identities, practices, ways of being that are not in uh, in line with our conception of who this person is. And I think that's somewhat different. In other words, to um, you know, when you steal somebody else's idea, even if it's a if it's a black church tradition to do so, that's a problem. Like that's that's an actual sort of ethical moment that you need to pause, and we need to engage. What does it mean? for King to have done that, and what, how do we understand those practices? Um, when you engage in what appears to be um, a consensual sexual relationship with someone of the same sex, it's not a failing. It, uh, it's, it's a practice. And it's a practice that we then have to um, reconcile our understanding of who Malcolm Little uh, is because my understanding of from reading the book is it really is um, it, it really is Manning's understanding that to the extent that there was um, same sex uh, sexual relations that they occurred during the part of his life when he's Malcolm Little. So we have to try to comprehend that. Now, um, the first time that I read a, a revision of of Malcolm's understanding of of himself was Robin Kelly's rereading of the zoot suit, right? So um, so if you know Robin Kelly's um, brilliant rereading of the zoot suit, he says, look, when Malcolm talks about himself in Haley's autobiography, he says, when I was a zoot suiter, I was without politics, right? I was, I, I was just this guy out there doing this thing. And it really is uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad who gives me a political worldview through this theological worldview. Right. But Robin goes back and says, wait a minute. The Zoot Suit is all about politics, right? You cannot be a young black man walking around in an expensive suit in the city during World War II when people are supposed to be, um, uh, they're supposed to be, I mean, it's hard because we've been at war for 10 years and no one is supposed to sacrifice anything. But in the context of World War II, how you demonstrated that you were part of the domestic war effort was to be self-sacrificial. And black folks in particular are always meant to be self-sacrificial vis-a-vis the American state, right? Even, <laughs> even if there is no war going on. So to be a young black man wearing a flashy, expensive suit in the context of World War II, and we learn from Manning with such um, beautiful snark how he gets out of serving uh, in the war and how he gets yeah. around it. <laughs> it's really just got to love him. He just you know, plays full crazy um, and just crazies out and is like, you're not going to be sending me to war. Crazy. Um, and he kind of takes the whole, um, um, you know, moral question about war and puts it to the side and makes sure he doesn't have to go. And so all of those things are there. But but what, what Robin gives us, what Robin Kelly gives us is, look, Malcolm, you were political. You, you don't want to say that you were, and maybe you couldn't see it, but it was an incredibly political act to be a young man doing these things in this moment. So part of what I what I read when I read these things that are now being called failings and and I think a lot of them are around the relationship with Betty a lot of them are around the um, 
the kind of harshness with which he treats his lieutenants, and certainly a lot of them are around the anxieties about the about the question of same-sex um, sexual activity, although it's not at all clear to me that there's ever gay identity. I don't know that those are failings. I think those are revisions or re-readings or re-understandings even of how Malcolm would have understood himself. So do I think Malcolm thinks he was non-political as a zoot suitor? Yes. But do I also think Robin Kelly has something on the politics of the zoot suit? Absolutely. Do I think Malcolm X looked back on same-sex sexual activity that Malcolm Little had and had enormous shame and understood that as a deep failing as a man? Absolutely. But do I see Manning reading it as such? No. I see Manning as giving us a different vision of what those practices were and what his practices are relative to his wife going forward in this whole story of, of activism. Want to jump in, Lester? Yeah. I, um... So what's going to happen at first is what's happening now, but it's a process. Right, so the first thing is you've got this competing vision, and then you've got this original vision, and you've got all this, uh, you've got a great deal of contention. But over, over time, what's going to happen is you're going to reconcile that moment. At least for me personally, I, uh, I've been a small D Democrat for a while, but it really shifted to me when I became 40. Because at that point, I was older than both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X when they were assassinated. And I have five kids, right? So I'm looking at this as a parent, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's no way in hell I would do what they did and sacrifice my children, right? There's no way in hell I'd do that, right? So at that moment, for me, they become different figures, right? So I think what's going to happen is, is that, that these two visions are going to reconcile themselves, and then we'll have – it won't be like a – it won't be like an easy middle – but it will be a more human middle, right? Now, there are a number of aspects about this, this new Malcolm that we may disagree with and fight over, but that new middle, I think, gets us closer to that small-D Democrat vision, I think. And what, what are those pieces you think we would fight over? Uh, I, I read the same-sex activity a bit different than, than Melissa does, right? So I know we're on C-SPAN, so I'm trying to figure out a way to articulate. So we were talking about it on the phone. Like, I can't say what I said to you over the phone. Um, but it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's, it's clear to me that something occurred. And it's clear that that something was in part dictated by the market, right, and that you had cash exchanging hands. It's not clear to me that what happened was a same-sex activity first. And then second, I would need much more information in order to verify that it, in fact, was. And this is one of those areas that the citation... So there are 80, 80 pages of footnotes, mm -hmm. but a lot of that stuff isn't footnoted, mm -hmm. right? And I, think, and, and I think some of that stuff is something that needs to be actually footnoted if for no other reason than those who have a, a challenge with it can go back and verify. That's what the, that's what the purpose of footnotes but, but, are. But does anybody need... I mean, it, it, let's take away the, the Malcolm Little moment and okay. let's go yes. just to yes. the homoerotic practices yes. of the nation, right? In, yeah, in the yeah, sense yeah. that it is a... We are on season. <laughs> <laughs> you are good. You right, are okay, good. right. So just, 
just in the sense of, and so this is the verified and this is the footnoted part, this sense of Malcolm's ours, it's all us guys, we are just together, women over there. So whether that is about erotic engagement with one another's bodies is a separate question than whether or not it is a homosocial political space that says that the only, the only bodies, ideas, persons, goals that matter are men. Yes, that's right. Right? And so part of the transition of Malcolm is a move into an increasing willingness to embrace um, a leadership role for women, yeah. which also seems to be at least in part engaged with him liking them as human beings. So again, taking yeah. the sexuality yeah, out of it, right? right. Just right. saying, look, yeah. you know, that, that he's got this whole narrative about his mother's um, mental illness. He's got this whole narrative about the woman who, who helps to put him in jail, you know, and all of these things Manning builds up to, and what he gives us is Malcolm does not like women. And maybe this is sexual, maybe it's not, but the big issue here is that Malcolm just sort of thinks women could sit on down and shut up. And then Malcolm turns into a person who, as he's becoming more of a racial Democrat, little d, also becomes more of a gender Democrat, little d. But that part of that is one also has to have ethical and, and personal liking for women, it, yeah. that it can't be just and exclusively political. Yeah. So to me, like the the sexual and erotic is is in part standing in for uh, the political and theological. Yeah. See, I I, I got to say I've found this. Uh, I mean, and I couldn't agree more about this issue of kind of separating Malcolm Little from Mal- Malcolm X, and then seeing the journey of Malcolm X um, being one that's not just about race, but that's also about gender. I, found, I find precisely what you described, Melissa, as this, this place that in which there is a kind of um, focus on men and the ideas of men and who men are as people to the exclusion of women to be like ho-hum in, in the sense that that is the space in which most power is exercised in the United States and I dare say in many places. Um, that that is exactly the character of it. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. And whether it's the Nation of Islam, whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party um, or any other very powerful or Wall Street powerful organization, political science departments, departments, law law schools, uh, you know, this is how power... So, I mean, this returns to the earlier comments about, you know, this being like a very American story. Like, that stuff was like the pages were just flipping by for me because I I find this uncontroversial. What is the interesting part is precisely the part you were referring to at the end, Melissa, and that is that as... This is the perfect example of how, as we begin to develop ourselves around this idea of racial justice, as we begin to open our minds and our spirits to thinking about equality in terms that understands power, that understands who's at the bottom and who's at the top, and the ways in which race can be deployed in order to maintain that, that stratification and so forth, is the same way and same context in which it opens up our minds about a whole variety of other issues, including gender. Uh, And that transformation, the beginning of that, the liking that that Melissa talks about for women, the beginning to see women as people, um, that's that critically important transformation that then did become much more interesting for me because it suggests that this is also about the evolution of how we exercise power that power is sometimes most potent, most attractive, least um, controversial, at least to those around you, 
when it's being exercised in a way that's exclusionary, um, that's harsh, that's cruel, um, that's hating, um, that, that's, e that's the easy power. Um, but the broader power that, that Malcolm begins to talk about when he's away, you know, in Cairo and traveling in, in, in Africa, and he says that, you know, this is for the whole, this is going to benefit the whole, that's how he describes it, W-H-O-L-E. Um, when you begin to pursue that whole power, as Malcolm was doing and as Martin was doing at the end of his life, then it's much more disruptive, much more dangerous to the status quo, uh, much more potentially uh, disruptive. Uh, and to me, that part of the narrative is the part that I find, that's where the speeding up begins. When you talked about the speeding up at the, at the point of the assassination, that's where the story begins to speed up to me in a way that started to make my stomach hurt. Because almost when you see that coming, you know what's coming next. Go ahead, Martin. Yeah, very briefly. And, you know, uh, this, uh, with the brilliance of everything that's been said, I just want to um, add a couple things. First of all, you know, we ain't got no pimp records. We don't got no Cadillac sales. We have nothing about, and ain't nobody questioning that. We never questioned that. We never like, well, well prove he was a pimp. Uh, like, really prove. Where's the proof that Malcolm was a pimp? Because what Manning does is really deconstruct most of that. Like, that stuff, you were in Lansing, dude, when you were, like, supposed to be in New York. So uh, there's more evidence to suggest he wasn't doing that stuff than the stuff we find problematic. So what does that say about us? We're comfortable with the notion that Malcolm could have been a pimp. Exploiting women. Look at what Professor Harris Perry was saying. Professor Eiffel. Exploiting women. And I do think, given her brilliant um, dichotomy, or at least uh, division between failure and practice, I would say Malcolm's disdain for women is a failure. Uh, I would put it in that category, which means most of us who are men fail at that level, right? I mean, so I'm not Amen. citing him as he's extraordinary. Most of us, that, that's a huge failure, right? But I think her, the brilliant insight there about the psychosexual politics and the politics of the construction of the erotic, what we have a problem with is that Malcolm brushed up closely against uh, the homoerotic. And not only as Malcolm Little, but as Professor Harris Perry talks about, within the context of a, an exclusively male preserve which was the nation of Islam, and she, you know, we can talk about a whole bunch of others as well, fraternities and the like, churches and deacon boards and so on and so forth. What's interesting is that we ain't got no problem with him excluding you know, women and then using them, pimping them, putting them on the street, selling their flesh. Oh, my God, yeah, that's just, just for granted. But no, God forbid that a, that a homoerotic act, which was not exploiting anybody because it was for gay for pay as as we talk about it, and then hustlers have done a lot of stuff that they didn't existentially invest in. It was, a, it was a practice for money. Professor Spence talks about that, the commercial exchange. Cash is being exchanged. I don't love you. I'm doing this because I want a, a happy ending or a great outcome. So the reality is, is that we have a problem because it really exposes where we are. The deep and profound lacerating homophobia that blocks us from seeing Malcolm as even greater a figure because more men can identify with him. A greater cross-section of struggling black men, American men in general, can identify with him because we've struggled at so many points in terms of the abuse of women, in terms of self-abuse, in terms of engaging in all kind of nefarious practices for the exchange of commerce, for cash and commerce. So that's, that's one thing, I think, that needs to be expressed and opened up so that the evidence, the empirically verifiable evidence that is available is 
is, is, is lacking in the area where Malcolm's greatest assertion of manhood is. And, and, and let me end by saying this on this point. Not, I'm not homophobic, or I am as a man who's a heterosexual, born in a heterosexual culture, but I'm saying this. If he was Malcolm Little and he got converted and now he's Malcolm X and he's doing a different thing, the whole point of Malcolm exaggerating his hustling itinerary was to prove just how deep Elijah Muhammad was. So why don't we throw this in that category? Wow, Elijah Muhammad must have been deep because whatever he was doing on the hustling stuff, the gay hustling stuff, or the hustling with women and the pimping and so on, and the thievery and stealing people's stuff showed that Elijah Muhammad could stand a, a man up and make him a responsible, morally and ethically person. Even though I think the problem, of course, would be that again, and I think this is Professor Harris Perry's, the dif difference between a practice and a failure. We're not going to throw, I don't want to throw homosexuality into a failure because people who have been converted are still gay and lesbian and transgender and bisexual. So we don't want to see that as to, to demonize that. And how many men in religious organizations that hate officially, theologically, same-sex activity are gay themselves? You know, so I think we have to acknowledge that as well. This is, this is Manny Marvel writing about Malcolm X uh, when he's on his sojourn through Africa. He had just left the secretaries uh, home in Guinea, who was then the, the, uh, the leader of uh, Guinea. And, and I'll just read this one paragraph and let's wrestle with this a bit. As Malcolm sought to process this extraordinary recognition of status, talking about the big house and what he saw Tory was in and what he saw as liberation fathers in, in the, that he's met throughout Africa, he reflected on how he had changed in the past few months. Quote, my mind seems to be more at peace since I left Mecca in September. Mm. My thoughts come strong and clear, and it is easier to express myself, end quote. Paradoxically, he then added, my mind is almost incapable of producing words and phrases yeah. lately, and it has worried me, end quote. What he appears to be saying is that his Middle East and African experiences had greatly broadened his mind, yet his limited vocabulary of black nationalism was insufficient to address the challenges he so clearly saw confronting Africa. Malcolm sensed that he needed to create new theoretical tools and a different frame of reference beyond race. Now, to me, that one paragraph says a lot. There are a lot of pieces to this. Like we could parse out and write 100-page essays or maybe every other sentence. But let's start with one. Well, I mean, of course, as, as Manning um, himself, I, I'm sure, would say if he was here, that's, that's Fanon in part. That's Fanon in part. Right. Yes. So part of what... Franz Fanon, we're talking about the, the psychiatrist and the theorist. Right. So, so I, um, in other words, I think that Manning's actually a little too limited in his reading of, um, of Malcolm's wordlessness. Certainly part of it is about the limitations of black nationalism. And, and um, as Professor Spence has brought up, I think we have to grapple with, um, with, with Manning's own um, anxieties about nationalism. So it gets, it gets read in that way. But it also seems to me that part of it is that the expat experience makes English insufficient. It's not just that it makes black nationalism insufficient, it makes English insufficient. So the, the contribution to us from Fanon is that the problem for all of us who are uh, imperial subjects, right, um, is that we, don't, we literally don't have language that is any language other than the language of our imperial masters. Um, so we've seen, you know, such a... I, 
so I, I hate to put them on the table, and I'm only going to do 15 seconds. I'm taking right back off. One of the things that I wish I could see President Obama do more is speak in in a different language. And I know all the reasons he doesn't, but part of what I um, what was to me at stake in the whole. Uh, birth certificate madness, is the fact that Barack Obama actually knows from whence he comes on the continent of Africa is precisely the thing that makes Barack Obama um, not Negro enough for the right. Because what the right wants us to experience, and in fact I think what what most of the the white American um, construction for most of black history has been, is that we are to experience rootlessness. We are not supposed to know where our birth certificate is. We're not supposed to know where we're from. We're not supposed to have another language that we can speak. So when I read that, I thought, yes, it's about the limitations of black nationalism, but it's also simply about the limitations of Americanness. That, um, you know, so we do this like, well, it's not civil rights, it's human rights. That starts to move us there. But the fact is that literally English fails to have, all European languages fail to have the discourse, the words, the vocabulary, the construction of sentences necessary to reveal the depth of black suffering. And so um, we see this Malcolm at the end of Manning's book who is like, I want him, I keep wanting him to stay, just He's there, and he's with Du Bois, and he's with Maya, and I just keep thinking, don't, don't go back. Don't go back. They're going to kill you when you go back. Don't go back. Just stay. And he knows it, too, right? Malcolm knows. We already know the end of the story, right? And Malcolm apparently knows it, too, but he goes back anyway, in part because he is so American and because this is where the fight is. And so for him... As much as America is insufficient and as much as it's the imperial master, as much as he has no language, it's also the only place that he cares about liberating. It is the only place in the end that he is willing to die for. And so for me, Manning gives us what that struggle felt like. It is Gethsemane. It is the like, take this cup from me, and yet yet he goes back. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a panel we recorded in May of 2011 at the Enoch Pratt Free Library about the life of Malcolm X and the legacy of Manning Marable, author of Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. This week, we remember Malcolm X, who was assassinated in New York City on February 21st, 1965. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information, www.mecu.com. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information, www.mecu.com. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Last week was the birthday of Malcolm X, who was born on May 19th, 1925. And to continue this remembrance of his legacy, we bring you a panel discussion we recorded at the Enoch Pratt Free Library on May 2011 about Manny Marable, the scholar who died just before his groundbreaking but controversial biography, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, was published. Marable's work sought to redefine Malcolm's legacy. To the chagrin of many, the anger of some, 
and the applause of others. We are joined by Michael Eric Dyson, Melissa Harris-Perry, Sherilyn Eiffel, and Dr. Lester Spence. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Mitchell Ferguson. Um, Fred Hampton used to always say, get the people to say, I'm a revolutionary. He would get them to say that over and over and over again. And one of the things that, um, that happened is, and historically, we have diminished that period as them being somewhat misguided, frivolous. And what Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party did was, you know, if that was so diminished and not so powerful, how come they created COINTELPRO and attacked all those people over and over and over again? Because what they did, the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, they did a critique of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And even our greatest scholars who supposedly being progressive, they don't really do a critique of capitalism. And that's one thing that happened with King, when you listen to all their speeches, and Malcolm. That's what they started to do when you really, and the evolution was a critique of capitalism. And once you start doing that, that's where the danger happened. And our scholars, our black scholars, they don't really do that. You know, you talk about black nationalism and this, but a critique of capitalism is very dangerous. It's a worthy comment in the context of talking about Manning Marable, whose um, politics were, I think part of his anxiety about black nationalism was precisely yeah. because he understood his politics rooted mm-hmm. more in a black radical socialist tradition. Um, now, uh, I will say, uh, and this is, an, I, I once asked Manning, well, you know, how do we do this? How, how do we, um, I was a graduate student and I was trying to get a job in the academy. And um, one of the most powerful things Manning ever did was teach me how to get what I needed from this institution um, financially. People don't talk about it at all. They just act like it's, you, know, you should just get a job and be happy. And Manning was like, you ask for this, and then you ask for this, and then the next day you ask for this, and they don't give you this, it's all right. You go back. And I said, well, whoa, wait a minute. How can, how can I simultaneously ask basically for a contract and have, a, have a, um, a commitment to questions of economic justice. And Manning smiled that smile that if you knew him, you know. And he says, Melissa, nothing is too good for the working class. Mm. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things that I am reminded in that, and it's a challenge, I appreciate the challenge that you have just offered, because I, I do think that there is, um, there is real intellectual danger in our connections to institutions that feed us. Um, And I think that one of the things that Manning's text on Malcolm suggests to us is the ways, I mean, part of the fight, right? The the fight that leads to his death with the nation is about having a roof over his his head. If Malcolm had had an independent, wealthy, whatever, who could have taken his wife and four children at that point and put them in a home where they could have lived, all of them together, he actually would not have had to fight with the nation theologically, politically, intellectually the way he did. But he couldn't. He literally couldn't afford to live. I think one of the things we also learn sometimes um, from some of the more critical texts on um, on King, including um, uh, Dyson's incredibly important book on King, is that like he is hustling, he is working, he is going to, he's giving talks not because he likes his big voice so much, because that's what feeds 
himself and the movement. So I think there's no doubt that we have to simultaneously recognize that we are, even when you're the black elite, you are working freaking class because you are for the most part not from, I mean, my people didn't, when they die, there will be nothing, right? So you're not intergenerationally wealthy like so many of your scholarly peers. You may live in a big house, but you have a mortgage on that sucker, right? So there's this way in which, on the one hand, we are simply structurally positioned different than many others, but at the same time, need to continue to engage in an economic critique that fits with our political, gendered, social one, but it can be difficult. So I appreciate the comment in part because it just reminds us of precisely the work that I think Malcolm and Manning were both up to. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And one of the things it points to, so we now really study and are able to get a certain cachet to study, studying racial inequality, right? But if you were to go to Hopkins and look at their history syllabus, for example, to see what they teach, I'm willing to bet you wouldn't find anything on labor history. If you were to go to Morgan, uh, look, do the same thing, you wouldn't find anything on, on labor history. Political science doesn't have a class on class politics, even though I teach the class on racial politics. So I think what we have to do is, in some ways, those of us who are in the academy who were uh, the beneficiaries of, of Manning's work, what we have to do is start to re-educate ourselves to, to really deal significantly with class. And I, and I say that as somebody with black nationalist leanings. That, that's something that's incredibly important, both interracially but also intra-racially. That is, we have to begin to understand and really work with the way class plays itself out in black communities. And I think that uh, th th those are brilliant points. I, I hope you really hear them because those are very important points. Um, and I, I just would simply add, uh, to piggyback on what Professor Harris Perry said, Martin Luther King Jr. had to borrow money from his daddy oh, yeah. to pay his taxes yeah. because he was giving so much of it. The reason I think he's the greatest American and Malcolm X along in that same, um, certainly in that same cohort, is because the level of sacrifice was mind-boggling. Uh, and, and like Brother Professor Spence said, you got five kids, you're thinking differently, and you can understand his wife, she's been positioned as a kind of shrew and hag, but she's got to take care of the kids. Martin Luther King Jr. left her in the hood when he finally bought a crib, 1965, two and a half years be be before he died because he had gone to India and believed that, that people shouldn't own property. So when you start talking about, you know, the radical, King was a true radical and believed not in possessing personal property. But look, he borrowed money from his daddy for taxes, and he's, Harry Belafonte has taken out a $100,000 policy, life insurance, on each of his five kids. This is what Professor Harris Perry, say, Harris, Harris Perry is saying. So if Malcolm had had a benefactor, if he had been Langston Hughes, so to speak, and could get some of that white Harlem dough, then he would have had a different perspective. So is, even as we deconstruct capital, the point of Karl Marx's deconstruction of capital didn't mitigate against existential assertion of the value and worth of capital. Because when the dude tried to marry his daughter, Karl Marx said, can you take care of her? Karl Marx said that. Das Kapital. Can you take care of my daughter? So I believe in IRAs, individual reparations accounts. And... I believe in IRAs, individual reparations accounts, and I think you can't give it to great-great-great-great-grandpa, but you can redistribute wealth towards some of the contemporary people who are inheriting their, their ideas, but it makes it more incumbent upon us 
to press the argument forward and to tell the truth about the suffering of the masses who don't even have the quandaries we have because they don't even have a wage, they don't even have a salary. So when we deconstruct it, let's not talk about obliterating or eviscerating wealth, let's talk about its equitable distribution. I think that makes a big difference. Right, sir. Yeah, um, good evening. My name is Dekon T. I'm originally from West Africa, Liberia, and um, you know, I'm a middle school um, uh, math teacher. And I say that to say that um, I've been in this country for about 20, 25 years. I went to school, um, um, Baton Rouge um, Southern University, an all-black school. Very proud of that experience. And I did not read Alex Haley's um, you know, account of Malcolm X. And I think just by you know osmosis and being around people, listening to the Mark Steiner show, you know, I think I know <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know a lot about it. But I would like to pose um, two points. One is I kind of quietly uh, um, question the relevance, uh, you know, of black nationalism as it was practiced in the '60s. As you know, is it still relevant um, to have all these attributes, you know, to be put out there? And um, if you've read Manny's book. As a black African, you know, what's the universal truth that I can take from that book? Because um, you know, I think you know, it has a story that is not just you know, you know, an, you know, an African American story. So you know, what would be that universal truth you know that I can take from it? Thank you. You should take two or three. I was going to say you should yeah, take two or three questions idea. and then let's put them up. Yeah. All right. Well, well, uh, yeah. Why don't you do? A couple well, let's take. Let's tackle this first, though. Okay. Okay. <laughs> let's tackle this first. All right. <laughs> no, nah, black last is totally irrelevant. You know, just talk. <laughs> no, no. Here's the deal, right? Time. So, <laughs> being brief, um, at its best, at its best, for me, black, what black nationalism is about is finding best practices, best cultural practices that we can use to develop the tools to uh, to create, uh, to, to reform and reshape our identity and the spaces in which we live in a way that's humane and works best for black people, and that can in turn serve as a, as a set of practices or, or, um, or a kind of, a, a, kind of a, a body of work that can be used to change America in general. So I would actually say that there is more of a need now for black nationalism than even in the 50s, given kind of the, sh uh, the shape, the changing um, way we understand blackness and race. Uh, I, would have, I would only have to ask that you define the terms. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, so, you know, Lester and I have been having this fight about nationalism and feminism for a decade, so we don't have to um, uh, replay this at the moment. But, but I would say that I guess I could agree that those are the best aspects of it. For me, the, the most dangerous aspects are, of it are the extent to which nationalism then polices the boundaries of blackness. So in making that claim about what's good for black people, it then determines who are the appropriate black people for whom something should be good for. Um, and so what, ha what so frequently happens in practice, if not in theory, right. is a policing out of queer identities, of women, of, you know, of uh, the, the, the claim by our, our colleague Kathy Cohen in her brilliant book, The Boundaries of blackness is that one of the reasons that the black church 
is so slow in mobilizing around the HIV crisis in black communities is because it required a focus on those elements of the communities that were considered disreputable, IV drug users, um, those who were um, uh, gay men, um, those who may have other kinds of sexual practices that people had anxiety about. And so because the um, civil rights movement had been so fully engaged in making a claim on citizenship based on the respectability of black people, right? So we deserve to be citizens because you are misunderstanding us. We're actually, you know, Bill Cosby, right? So it, what, it, what it didn't leave room for was, but you have the right to, good, to be a citizen even if you're not Bill Cosby, right? So you have a right to health care even if you are practicing these disreputable practices. So I think... That, that on the one hand, nationalism at its most broad is, is a core love for blackness and black people, a preferential option for blackness, which so doesn't exist that, that having a preferential option for blackness that appears in everything from like who you go buy your car from when you walk into the mm -hmm. dealership and you're like, uh, the black guy, because you figure even if he's cheating you, at least then the cheating is going to a black guy, right? <laughs> um, Right, so there's all these like, or or or, to, or saying no, I actually don't want to live in the white neighborhood. You know, preferential option for blackness in a variety of ways. But the, but the danger is that that it can also limit what we think an appropriate blackness is. And in certain ways, I think Malcolm, excuse me, Manning's book on Malcolm does that, in that it's trying to retain Malcolm X as the core leader of African-American politics at this moment and simultaneously deconstruct who we think this black body is and suggest to us that it is more challenging, more difficult, more complex, and more at the boundaries of its own blackness than we would typically allow it to be in our mythology. Oh, real, just real quick. We disagree on black nationalism. We don't disagree on black feminism. Right. So I, I just, no, we do in that you said nationalism was the most important thing we need. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, okay. So I, I'd say it's a tie. Deal with that. Adam, go ahead. Hello. Thank you so much. I really appreciated listening to all of you guys That's on the right. panel um, this evening. So thank you mm -hmm. for being here. Uh, my name is Aida Rashid. I am uh, originally from California, but I've been in Baltimore for about seven years. Um, I'm an alum from Morgan State, and I'm actually an artist, but I have a love for um, humanity and life and understanding people's stories. So that's what brought me here this evening. But um, I come from, I, my grandparents uh, left Catholicism and went into the Nation of Islam. And then my father and mother embraced Islam. I guess after Elijah Muhammad um, died, his son, Worthy Muhammad, came about. And I am a product of that. I lived in Africa as a young girl. My father studied Arabic and then moved back to the country. And now I'm here living my life as a young Muslim woman in America. Mm. And so one of the things that I find interesting is that story of black nationalism and how I'm a part of that, but then to understand the Honorable Elijah Muhammad not only produced Malcolm X, but a Muhammad Ali and a Louis Farrakhan. And so these are like pretty significant figures in our times today that we all sort of look to. And I'm curious to know from the panel how you guys look to see how Malcolm was directing the black community to essentially um, Islam, I guess, and which when I say Islam, I, 
Arab, it's Arabic for al-Islam means the peace. And so I'm curious to know like how, how, how you guys feel about that and how Malcolm, I feel like as a young Muslim in America, how he was directing African-Americans to understand Islam, to study it, and to understand the, the understanding of jihad, which means struggle in Arabic, but it means, yeah, it means struggle and how we all struggle and we all have our personal struggles, but it's really within. It's not about pointing fingers and saying this person is, is harming me, but we really have to do the work on the inside. So it's a pretty broad question, but I'm very curious to know what you guys feel about. Mainly the, the question is, how do you feel about Malcolm leading the black community to, to learn and understand Islam for okay. its essential so, like, okay. core? So now we yeah, well, you know, um, my wife was in the Nation of Islam under Elijah Muhammad, right? Uh, as a young girl. She was 16 years old and had left Catholicism or was, was on her way. I get it confused. I know she was uh, under uh, Catholicism and then under the Nation of Islam and was reading Malcolm X's book, had it snatched out of her hand and was reprimanded and then taken to Elijah Muhammad himself. And uh, I said, wow, that's a... <laughs> That, that, could have been, that story could have turned out differently um, in, in many ways that I don't even want to speak on. Uh, so I, I begin there by, for the reason that now as a mature, brilliant uh, minister and social activist, she is, not me. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, I'm not. <laughs> right. Well, uh, so she as a uh, mature minister and brilliant social activist uh, who passed through Islam, and through Catholicism, and through Christianity. No, she's still a Christian. Uh, but a post-Christian Christian, so to speak. Um, you know, it's very interesting to me to see that, that the marks on her life that I've been able to discern and understand have been extraordinarily positive and edifying. Uh, so Malcolm X, when I think about Malcolm directing black people toward Islam, I think about Marcy and millions of other people who have subscribed and held fast to the faith. The, the problem, of course, uh, is not in Islam, in its theological verities that it produces in the same way as Christianity. It's in the practice of it and the perversion of it by people who done messed it up. And um, so I think that uh, Malcolm X's ambition, moral ambition, cannot be distinguished from what he learned from Elijah Muhammad at his best. Muhammad did produce a Malcolm X, a minister Farrakhan from the Episcopalian Church in Boston, and then, of course, uh, converted. And, of course, Muhammad Ali. And Ali made the choice of staying with the Nation of Islam when Malcolm X uh, departed. And I got a chance to speak to Muhammad Ali later, Muhammad Ali later, and he said he should have, you know, sh he should have been much more open-minded. I say all that to say, to be brief, that um, that it's the, the the ideals and the theologies and the moral verities are great. And I think what Malcolm did was about love of black people. I'm going to say something here as a Baptist minister. To me, it transcends your Christianity and your Islamic faith because there are some Christians who claim they know Jesus, who are doing some crazy stuff that I don't agree with at all. So I'd rather side with people who claim to be atheists, but who are doing the work of Allah or Jesus or the Bhagavad Gita or the Oli Quran or the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Whatever book 
establishes the predicate of your faith beautiful, but I think in the end, it's, and here, here's where I ironically, even though I've tried to be critical of many elements of the fascist dimensions of black insular thinking, and the way in which, as Professor Harris Perry says, that it polices the boundaries of blackness, you want us all to be together, and then you say, but except these kind of people who are black. Well, what the hell are you talking about? We all can't be together if you're talking about except the gay people or the lesbian people. Either all of us going to be together, cantankerous diversity in the midst of a mythology of unity, what they used to call operational unity from black nationalism in the 1960s, or, or it means nothing. And ultimately, me, ultimately, my blackness and my religion have converged into love. And I think that the love in the ultimate sense, that unless we can em- embrace and love blackness at every instance of it, not that we're not critical of the, the ways in which it has problematized our humanity. So I think if Malcolm was doing something that was helping black people, cool. If, Christian pe- if Martin Luther King Jr. was doing stuff to help black people, cool. Uh, but I think ultimately it must help us become more humane in the midst of our struggles. And anything, religion included, that interferes with the process of radical dissemination of love at the instance of our existence or in community is antithetical to humans and I think ultimately to God. The only other thing I would say is, and I'm glad that, um, you know, if we own personal testimonies, uh, (laughs) no. No, only, only that. No, only, only that. Only that. There, there, there was this period. This, there was this important opening of, I think, the black mind uh, in the the late '50s and through the '60s that had a lot to do with the civil rights movement. And it would be really um, a mistake for people not to understand the significance of Malcolm X and actually the movement of the, the rise of the Nation of Islam as part of that opening of the mind. So I had two sisters who joined the Nation of Islam in the late 1960s as well. Now this this was shocking. Um, this was a, this was you know we were raised in a very Christian family. This was this was extremely um, shocking. Um, and yet, what came out of it was a kind of respect, a kind of it made us curious. Um, it 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 didn't shatter. Uh, the love and the relationship in, 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 for something that you know we didn't really know very much about. What we knew about the Nation of Islam, we knew because of Muhammad Ali and because of Malcolm X. That's what we knew. We didn't we didn't have any other markers within our community um, to tell us something about the Nation of Islam. And those two things that we knew, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, were regarded as positive. So it created this opportunity. It created this door through which we did begin to open our minds and we did begin to open our ideas about the range of black experiences that were out there. What's disturbing today, I don't know where the sister is with the question, what disturb, what's disturbing to me today is that post 9-11 and the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we had an opportunity to further that opening of our mind. It was, it was actually the blast was to, you know, should have opened our minds. The, the horror of this thing should have opened our minds and should have made us ask questions and should have made us listen for real answers. And there was a brief moment. There were about two weeks when I thought it was going to happen. Um, and then it didn't happen. 
Uh, and in fact, it, it has really closed the American mind tight in many ways, particularly about Islam and the very things that you were just describing in asking your question. Uh, and so this is a moment in which, you know, in, in reading this book and reading about the nation of Islam and me, reading particularly about uh, Malcolm's journey after his Hajj and, and his feelings about uh, Islam and how, how it really centered his, began to center his ideas about who he wanted to be and the contribution he was trying to make, um, really just kind of calls to mind this very disturbing moment that we're in right now where this is precisely what we need is to do exactly what the examination that, that Michael Eric Dyson says that we need to examine, which is about trying to find this essential quality about love that unites this piece. And yet this is the very moment in which we're just saying, no, I won't, no, no, no. We, we know, we know that that's the way. Um, and, and yet there seems to be this willful desire to turn away from it. And so it's very poignant um, re reading about Malcolm's journey as a Muslim in this book at the precise moment that we're in this kind of field of darkness and disinformation uh, about Islam. We have to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we rejoin that conversation about Manny Marable's book, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Last week was the birthday of Malcolm X. He was born on May 19, 1925. And to continue this remembrance of his legacy, we bring you a panel discussion we recorded at the Enoch Pratt Free Library on May 2011 about Manny Marable, the scholar who died just before his groundbreaking but controversial biography, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, was published. Marable's work sought to redefine Malcolm's legacy, to the chagrin of many, the anger of some, and the applause of others. We are joined by Michael Eric Dyson, Melissa Harris-Perry, Sherilyn Eiffel, and Dr. Lester Spence. Enjoy the conversation. Um, good evening. Good evening. I've really enjoyed everything I've said thus far. Um, my name is Michael Lindsay, and I'm a lecturer at uh, Morgan State. And being a lecturer, I primarily teach freshmen sophomores. Um, and what I discovered um, as far as when this book came out and picking it up and, and first opening it and wanting to bring it to my class, I actually took it to one class. But what quickly uh, came to me was that uh, I was teaching young people who only have the Spike Lee um, version of Denzel Washington type of cinematic version of, of, of Malcolm X. And it was hard to have a, a, a what I'll call a complex conversation, you know, about the book um, when the, uh, the, there was no, little to no prior knowledge. Um, so, you know, um, as stated before, I'm sort of, I can get rid of the, um, the Spike Lee Malcolm X, um, the Alex Haley Malcolm X, um, but I'm the question is, uh, to a generation that doesn't even have the Alex Haley Malcolm X and only have the, has the generation, the uh, Denzel Washington uh, Malcolm X, how do you believe this book will play into the younger people coming up learning Malcolm X for the first time, period? That's a, that's a really good question. Let me get the other guy. I think we can tie oh, these yeah. things together. Yeah. So go ahead. Uh, Ma'am, go ahead. 
My name is Kachobi, and I'm an educator here in Baltimore. Um, my question is very similar to the gentleman who stood before us, before me, rather. Um, I just want to preface my question with the following. Um, on the way over here, my children and I took the light rail, and we saw um, about five young black uh, male uh, teenagers uh, being questioned by the police. Uh, MTA police, that is the uh, transit police. And what bothered me is that um, four of them were let go, but they had one sitting on the ground, and uh, he was told to keep his hands behind his back. Um, he actually, um, at the point of being asked to stand up, stood up without any kind of uh, uh, smugness, um, and he followed all of their, you know, <coughs> commands, so to speak. Raise your hands, let me frisk you, all of that kind of thing. I say all of that to say that I am one who totally embraces Alex Haley's um, interpretation of uh, Malcolm X's life. I say that as one who has not read uh, Mr. Manning's book on Malcolm X, but I fully intend to. Um, but I just ask you scholars, you teachers, um, what is the message that this current work uh, will, that will what is the message that this uh, current work will bring to our young black males that Alex Haley's work has not brought to it? Very good question. Sarah, in the blue shirt. Uh, hi, my name is Alex. Um, Malcolm X has meant a lot to me since I read it in high school. I read it right when uh, the movie came out, and it was a really big deal in my school. Never heard of him, and if he can hear me, I just want some respect to go to him. He was, it's amazing. But um, I had a three-part three um, kind of comment, I guess. One, it seems to me that with seeing the failures of a great leader, it's almost like us growing up and seeing our parents differently. Mm -hmm. Like we see our parents as heroes, then we see their failings, and all of a sudden we just want to rage against the world because they're not what we thought they would be. And then in the end, we kind of piece it together and realize that's what makes them great. Um, the second part is, I think, a key to Malcolm X and to what you're saying about how his story unfolded was that his story is, this, it's all marked by conversion. He converted to the Nation of Islam, and therefore, doing that, he had to create a narrative of conversion. I was once this. Now I'm this. And so that even makes it even harder when you're talking about autobiography because he would keep reinventing that as he goes along, you know, he, because he's inventing his story to go with the conversion. Um, I think being Muslim is a big part of who he is and a big part of what makes him challenging for everyone. But I also noticed that Malcolm X becomes more and more alienated as he goes along. Because he, challenge, he challenges life, he challenges politics, and people go, oh yeah, you did great, but he keeps going and keeps challenging. He goes to another country. One, he becomes Muslim and becomes even separate from the people he's around. Going to another country, all of a sudden becoming different from other Americans around him. It seems like he's a life of increased alienation that in a way, it's strange that he was killed by, by African-Americans, just like Gandhi was killed by Hindus. 
Let me, let me ask a quick question before we let you all close out the evening and respond to all of this. Um, is it just you left? Yeah. Well, then get up there. I'm sorry. I thought it was a, lot, there was a whole line. I would be unfair to leave you sitting there all by yourself. Yeah. Go ahead. Cool. Um, my name is Dave Love. I'm a student at Towson University. Um, my question is, because there's been, you know, discussion um, kind of briefly about black nationalism, um, and I guess my question is, is it possible to have a formulation of black nationalism that addresses some of the policing that goes on in some of what Dr. Dyson refers to as the fascist elements of insular black thinking? Is it possible to have a notion of black nationalism that addresses that policing? And how does uh, Mr. Marable's, or Dr. Marable's book, how does the, his portrayal of Malcolm X help in that conversation of the policing of the boundaries of blackness and black nationalism and its potential as a framework for political advancement of black people in this country. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's tie these things together. Well, I think I wanted to go to the question that the um, woman asked who saw the people on the light rail and it actually reminds us of the earlier question I think we didn't answer about the theme that comes out of the book. Um, And I'm, I'm not one to give people universal themes out of books because I think that's part of the fun of reading it is that you discover it yourself. But I take the question, I think I understand what you mean by the question. And also about what I hear is maybe a little bit of anxiety about um, Malcolm with clay feet. Um, And so I want to say a couple things. One is I'm very happy to hear the gentleman say that your children will later realize that's why you're great because right now that's not happening with my kids so I'm hoping that that's going to (laughs) happen. It's wonderful news. Um... But I do think that, um, and I I understand the anxiety. Uh, I don't think we should, because we're in this room tonight and because we are admirers of Manning Marable, um, pretend to ourselves that Alex Haley's Malcolm X is going away anytime soon or Spike Lee's. Um, First of all, they're right. First of all, they should not. Autobiography of Malcolm X is a brilliant book. It it should be read because it's a brilliant book book. Um, And it tells a story that is powerful and tells us many things about what it means to be black in America. It's it's important. It must be read. It is a seminal work. That's not going to change because we learn more details about Malcolm's uh, life that make him more human or because we learn his failings and so forth. Letter from a Birmingham jail written by Martin Luther King is no more diminished, nor is the I Have a Dream speech or the April 4th, 1967 speech because we know that he had extramarital affairs or whatever. Like, that, this just doesn't work that way. Do you know what I mean? There is, and, and we do have to open our minds to that. And I would suggest that, you know, we follow the example of what white America does with its heroes. <laughs> I don't know, I mean this seriously. I mean, we know a lot about George Washington, for example, that we probably didn't know when we were little kids. We knew he chopped down the cherry tree, he was the father of the nation, and so forth. Um, at some point, you know, we've learned more. If you read Andrew, you know, Wysenek's amazing book about, you know, George Washington and his slaves, it's worth reading. Uh, people didn't stop calling him the father of the nation. People didn't stop saying that he was a great man or a founder. We still have miniseries to John Adams and all, you know. So one of the problems, I think, is we get so nervous about our own leaders and the requirement that they be perfect, even as other portions of uh, the American public recognize the complexity of their heroes and refuse to allow their essential greatness to be diminished. So I have no problem maintaining what I think is a truth, which is Alex Haley's Malcolm X. That's a truth, particularly because 
it has all of the pieces that were talked about, that it's shaped by the time, it's shaped by Haley, it's shaped by how Malcolm wants to think of himself. All of that to me is relevant to understanding who this man is. Um, the Spike Lee movie, it's a damn good movie. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and, and although it is not a documentary, it never purported to be a documentary. And so therefore, it does what every movie fictionalized account of a great person does, is that it takes liberties. Um, and so, and some of those liberties are greater than others. So I think that those stories are not going away anytime soon. I'm not certain that this is going to be made into a movie, you know. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it will be, but I, I do think that we shouldn't overestimate you know, how quickly the revision will happen. Um, it's going to take time for people to absorb um, some of what's in here, and I take it that this, and I, and I think Manning Marable would want that, that this would begin a conversation. Other people will write. Other people will take portions of this and take up maybe looking more at the Nation of Islam and looking more at black nationalism in this period. This is the beginning of a story in many ways, and that, to me, since these are now my closing remarks, is what's great about the book, as a tribute to Manning Marable's life. He's not closed something. He didn't write the definitive work that now forever closes the story on Malcolm X. He opened a new story. Um, and that means that his work will go forward and has tremendous life as other people take up uh, different aspects of it and begin to explore it even further. Michael mm -hmm. Dyson. Amen. I mean, uh, amen, amen, amen. Uh, that, that's it's just great stuff. That the book should be continued to be read. It's a great book. It's a great story. It's, and, and the shape of moral ambition in America is the shape of story. And, you know, that's why we're living in a post-literate culture where people are going to the movies to get their, you know, fix for what novels used to do. Right, novel is not dead, but it certainly migrated to the screen. And the way in which people consume information, watching John Daly versus, you know, even CNN or watching CNN as opposed to reading the New York Times or reading the New York Times as opposed to The Guardian. So there are various levels at which people consume information, and I don't, you know, I don't think we should be elitist about it, uh, even as we're rigorous in our exploration of the ideas there. So I think that that, you know, the, the Spike Lee film is the greatest black biopic made, I would argue. I mean, I know a lot of people, I just, I'm saying, what's, what's deeper than that? And, and, and there, are minute, there are like three or four minute segments in that film when Denzel as Malcolm is doing nothing but spitting fire at white supremacy in a way you wish Obama could do in four years, right? <laughs> And as Professor Harris Perry has already said, we understand what the limitations are. We know why he can't do that. You know, and even though I'm a peacenik, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm interrupting Donald Trump's show so I can announce Bidline is dead. How you like me now? First of all, ain't no mistakes allowed. But anyway, uh, at some level, I just got to be straight up black masculinist about that and say, damn, you tell me I'm feckless and spineless and I have no cojones? And now here they are for the world to see. And I don't, you know, that's American empire, but it's a brown face and a brown body on American empire. And that's part of the problem. But you, you, and you got to kill somebody to prove you're American. That's the thing. That's part of it, right, not just somebody, right, right. Uh, but anyway, so having said that, the greatest uh, biopic, I think, made the Malcolm X uh, film. And I think that uh, and Denzel was, it was robbed big time. And I think Al Pacino got it that year because Pacino had been robbed before for Godfather. So, um, 
I, I think that it's important, and I'll answer these f final two. This is a, a great question in terms of uh, Malcolm X as, you know, uh, in terms of conversion. It's true. I mean, the beautiful central element of Malcolm's life is about constantly going from one thing to another, constant conversion, constant rethinking. And I'll tell you what that involves, vulnerability and self-criticism. And a lot of leaders just don't have that. A lot of intellectuals ain't got that. A lot of critics ain't got that. A lot of people, whoever we are, don't have that kind of willed vulnerability and the ability to be self-critical. And ironically, I heard somebody say when, when the gentleman said that ended up black people killing him, and, you know, maybe, well, even if the state was involved, and, and one of the things we didn't even get to tonight is that right. Mal Manning Marable makes very clear that the NYPD knew what the deal was and that state police forces knew what the deal was and didn't warn Malcolm. And why do we find that hard to believe? They didn't warn Martin Luther King Jr. and they liked him better, comparatively speaking, than Malcolm X. So why wouldn't they not warn Malcolm X? But having said that, one of the characteristic marks of blackness is self-sabotage and the willingness to hate other blacks. That's just funky, internalized white supremacy that's spread in blackface. It's the ventriloquist act of white supremacy, black mouth moving, white ideas speaking. Right? So at the end of the day for me, I think that the hatred and self-sabotage that we have internalized and then disseminated is characteristic of what happened to Malcolm and what we must resist in ourselves and others as we treat. That's why I think love is at the heart, and I think Malcolm X embraced that uh, at his best. And I think ultimately what Manning's book can do, it can help, I think, open up a conversation about what black nationalism is and what it should be and what any, not just black nationalism, but any ideology, any politics, any theory that is put forth in the name of people, the litmus test must be to what degree does it free vulnerable and working peoples who are black who are poor and whose backs are against the wall, and to what degree does it arrive in their lives as a vehicle of liberation? That's the litmus test at the end of the day, and I think this book will help forward that particular thinking. Dr. Spence. Uh, the, the, the one question that wasn't um, really answered yet, I think, is the, is the teaching question. I'm going to try to take it in a different way. Uh, 1965 is to this generation as World War I was to me and Professor Harris Perry. So if you think about it like that, what we have is not just... Let him finish, it, let him finish. Yeah, if, if you think about... I didn't think you made me older than I am. <laughs> if, you, if you think about that a second, it's not just about teaching Malcolm, it's about teaching the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, right? I mean, you got people who don't know who Rodney King is, right? So this is so. Give me, getting back to the nationalism thing, I want to take another cut at it. This is why we need a set of cultural institutions that can teach our history in a way that speaks both to our past and our present moment, right? Now, it's, again, it's not just black nationalism that says, okay, gay people aren't black. The black, there are black nationalist churches, but the black church is not nationalist, right? So I would say that it's really about taking that, taking that text, using it as part of a much larger body, and creating the spaces where you can take that larger body of text to speak to black people where they are. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Mr. Okay. Um, 
So a lot of uh, different things, and I'll try to do this quickly. Um, I was feeling sad as I listened to the story about the young men and the, and the MTA. And part of the reason I felt sad about it is my sense that ultimately this um, context, talking about a book and talking about a thinker and talking about ideas, um, is profoundly important and woefully inadequate on that question. Um, I sat at a dinner with a civil rights icon at one point, and um, we were talking about King and X, and I was talking about the assassination of Malcolm X, and this um, civil rights leader said to me, um, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Malcolm X was a common thug who died in a street fight. Mm. And I was, and I was, no, it wasn't, but, um, uh, and I was stunned, and I said, well, but wait a minute, and he says, well, let me explain. Um, Martin changed policy. He said, when you look at what Martin Luther King did, I can show you the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I can show you the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I can walk you through structural changes. Now, I think that there's a lot of reasons that that is, um, is unfair. But what I, what I do want to take from that um, difficult moment and, and the ways I had to process and think about that is that a lot of what Manning gives us and a lot of what we've done tonight is to talk about ideas. And I don't want us to lose that ultimately... Our notion that, the, that Alex Haley's version of Malcolm X can free the young men on the platform of the MTA is an assumption that what keeps them in that moment of bondage is their belief about who they can be, rather than the set of public policies uh, yes. that make their bodies easily victimized by people in uniform. And so I care about what our young people believe. I'm, I'm a mother, I, I care at my, I'm a teacher, I care at my core about what we believe. But I do not believe that African-American inequality is primarily a result of lack of imagination on the black, part of black people. Um, which is to say that for me, the, the critical liberating possibility of black religion, and this is true whether it takes the form of ancestral religions of Christianity or, and I wanted to come back to your nation question just for a second, because I think, you know, one of the things we have not been honest about relative to the nation is that the nation of Islam is like jazz. If the black Christian church is the blues, then, then, God, I sound like Cornell, but, but I don't, I don't, well, I don't mean it that way. What I mean is that it is an indigenous black institution. Right? So what I mean is that there are very few American theologies, right, that, that are born here, not imported, right? And the, and, and the two that, that actually are here, that exist here, that were born here, are black liberation theology out of slave religion that is about Christianity and the nation of Islam. Right? So there are two forms of Islam that, that, that find their way here, but immig immigration Islam only finds its home here because the nation exists as an indigenous institution. It's part of what makes that initial slur towards President Obama, Muslim. And then what we know that when they say Muslim, what they mean is N-word, right? We know that those things are, are linked. And so part of, the, part of the pain, the absolute pain of the moment of the killing of bin Laden is that we all feel the Jay-Z, ha-ha, Barack Obama, get him, take him, and we simultaneously feel he had to kill Osama right. bin Laden exactly. to do it. Exactly. That he had to kill the Muslim to do it, right? That the black president had to kill the Muslim, hoping that, and then the white folks still gave the credit to the white president right. who ain't right. round these parts no more right. for having done it. So we feel that because we know that there is, it was like black people wearing the NYPD hats 
post 9-11. See, I never felt the moment because when I saw black men in the city of New York while Rudy Giuliani was the mayor wearing NYPD hats, right, as a, as a reflection of their solidarity with the American state over and against the Islamic terrorists. Okay, so, so our identities are complex, but the beauty of the nation and the beauty of Alex Haley's Malcolm, which is a faith claim, and the beauty of the Christian God that enslaved people gave us was that they all are about an incredible imagination that is outside of empirical evidence. My great-great-great-grandmother was sold on a street corner in Churchill, Richmond. She never knew anything for herself but slavery, never knew anyone from her except slaves, never expected her children or grandchildren would be anything but slaves, and she believed that God loved her. Why? Why would she believe such a ridiculous thing? There was no empirical evidence that God even vaguely liked or noticed that black people existed on the planet. No, for, like seriously. The, and so, and this is why I hate the, 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 the form of Christianity now that like if God loves you, you get a big house and a yeah. fine spouse. Like prosperity. Okay, so, so the, so the, so the whole, the whole inherent possibility is that we have always had extraordinary imaginations. And you know what? Grandma died a slave anyway, despite the fact that she knew herself to be a full human being loved by God. So what I know is that Malcolm X's autobiography is this powerful text. But unless you are holding it in front of you when they shoot at you, it will not, it, it, it is insufficient. It is perhaps important, but always insufficient. So I suppose what I want us to take away from it is that the work that we have to do is structural work. We, the ideas are critically important. We need the ideas. I am afraid about our bad ideas. I'm afraid when we have ideas that say the best way to liberate yourself as a woman is to become Betty Shabazz or, or Michelle Obama and to attach yourself to an important man because then, and part of what I love about this book is it deconstructs that idea because you realize how much suffering Betty Shabazz experiences even, right, so, so that we can love her and also not have to tell our daughters to be that. So ideas matter. They matter critically, but then in the end, the fact is even if I don't want to be Michelle Obama or I don't want to be Betty Shabazz, unless I have equal pay for equal work and reasonable capacity to control my fertility, because one of the reasons that, that women ended, because they couldn't control their fertility, because there was no ability technically to be able to do, if I don't have health coverage, so I would love for Barack to spit fire to white folks, whatever. But what I'm much more interested in is I can look and see that his housing policy is fundamentally different. I can look, so, so what I, so I, I mean, I want spit fire, that'd be, that'd be hot. I, that'd be hot, I'd like literally. it, who wouldn't? Yeah, but, literally. right? But, but in the end, I just want us to remember that we will not, we cannot save our children exclusively through ideas. We must save them through ideas, but it can never exclusively be ideas. We already knew we were human. We already knew that God loved us. Now we have to take the political work that says, if God loves us and if I'm a human, then you as the state cannot continue to treat me as though I am not. Uh, as we close the evening, um, I want to thank the Marable family for being here this evening. I want to thank and remember Manning Marable for writing this book and who he was as a man and a scholar, Malcolm X, Life of Reinvention, uh, Professor 
um, Melissa Harris-Perry, Professor Sherilyn Eiffel, Professor Lester, Pence, Lester Spence, Professor Michael Eric Dyson. Thank you all for taking the time tonight. Thanks from all over the here. Thank all of you for coming tonight. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation that you just heard over the last two hours about Manny Marable's book, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. It was very intense, but I thought very provoking conversation. Thank you for listening. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our intern is Michael Dixon. Our theme music is by Juan Matthews with Clean Cuts. And send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.